0: I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. Today on the podcast, we're taking it outside for a conversation with James Doyle, principal, and Justin Quinn, partner of James Doyle Design Associates. James and Justin have the stated goal to create beautiful and innovative landscapes that deliver world-class design while enriching the lives of those for whom the space was crafted. And to do so with clear vision as it relates to creating an authentic sense of space. A while back, you probably heard the Book Look review I offered on their absolutely stunning tome called Intersection of Art and Nature. This is a firm that lives And delivers upon the promise behind the work. And because of that, I'm really thrilled to share this conversation with you. This is James and Justin from James Doyle Design Associates. We'll get to that right after this. I am incredibly proud of Convo by Design in year 10, and I'm equally proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They've been presenting partners of Convo by Design for three years now, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is. The best in the world at what they do. Thermosol engineers the most exceptional smart shower products and steam shower systems worldwide for a few reasons. They were the first company to design patent the technology here in the U.S. dating back to 1958. Thermosol, a U.S. brand, a U.S. manufacturer in Round Rock, Texas, employs an engineering team that designs, tests, and continuously refines the product. Their quality control team tests every single steam generator before it departs the factory. Who else does that? Nobody. I have had the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me, and you probably know this, that the idea of luxury has changed and continues to change, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory. Or it's just not considered a, a, a luxury space. And if you want to add steam, you have one true option. It's Thermosol. And now, Thermosol, the industry leader in steam, bath equipment, and technology since 1958, is enhancing their already stellar family of products with new indoor and outdoor luxury saunas. Available in three design configurations, each sauna is handcrafted from clear western red cedar or Nordic spruce, inspired by the brilliance of northern European sauna technology and design. A luxury bathroom isn't luxury without steam. If you want luxury, you have one option. It's Thermosol. Check them out at thermosol.com and at thermosol on the socials. And it's funny too, I get that. I get the question a lot um, about the difference between an interview and a conversation, right? Yeah. And it, it's funny, um, you know, part of my background is I was, I've been a journalist for for a long time and I, I used to do a show for Playboy called the Playboy Radio Interview, where it was basically, if you've ever read the magazine, they would have those interviews with celebrities, the Playboy interview. And I would take that concept and do it for radio. And what I found is journalists, it's really interesting because I'm leading into something um, into your book. Uh, But what's interesting to me is doing journalism for a magazine or for print is, is far different than doing something like this. Like here, we get to just have a conversation and chop it up and talk things through. When you're doing you know, a 2,000 word piece or a 5,000 word piece, you have to be very, very detail-oriented and specific with what you want your questions to be so you don't meander too much.
1: Yeah, but, I, I, I actually like that this is more about storytelling than Q&As about process, you know?
0: Yeah, well, and I... I, and I we wanted, wanted to,
2: some of that. But. And we won't be as sexy as your Playboy magazine interviews. So sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, you know what's funny though is the interviews weren't done with the playmates. The interviews, I mean, like, you know, my favorite interview was with an actor named Tom Sizemore who's who's clearly not a playmate, yeah. but yeah. um I I wanted to jump into that element of it because I was introduced to your firm through through your media arm, through your publicity arm. Mm-hmm. Um and it was for the book, and I, I received a copy of your book, Intersection of Nature and Art. And so, for me, I I got this is my second career, and I got into design coverage because I, I love what you do. I love the industry. I love what designers, architects, landscape architects, product design manufacturers. Um, your your book surprised me. Um, and I wanted to, I actually wanted to start there because that was my introduction to you. I, I'm a tactile person and, and I'm going to assume you guys are too. And I started flipping through the pages and each one took me a little bit deeper down a rabbit hole. Um, one of the things I noticed through your book, you can tell a lot about a creative when they put their work in a tangible format like a book. And the the work is so detailed and it looks, it looks to me so effortless. But I can tell by putting a book together like this that it was the furthest thing from effortless. The first thing I, I kind of wanted to dig into with, with you is why, why a book like this? And what was the process like? Be, we're going to get into the work, but I wanted to, to just sort of how do you synthesize your work down to the constraints of putting it into a into a book?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is our second book, and um, they both have been published by Images Publishing out of Australia. And they approached us a couple of years ago and asked us if we had um, enough work for a second book. And at that point, we hadn't thought about it but realized that we did and it came at the right opportunity and the right time for us to to sort of delve into it um we were we're probably the best client they ever had because we delivered them a completely designed and finished book that they basically had to print so being um detail-oriented and control freaks. <laughs> we um, did everything in-house and uh, sent them a finished product. So that was the sort of genesis. Um, and obviously, you know, when you when you decide to do a book, you've got to be really comfortable about the, the quality of the work that we had ready for display. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that it, I think it came at the most opportune time for us. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote that opening essay called Evolution because it wasn't just about the evolution of our work and there had been sort of a, a, a major progress in our style. But it also relates to sort of the evolution of our business and the people that we um, work with and, you know, my partnership with Justin and, um, you know, as much about the future of the business as as it was about the past projects. Yeah.
2: If you compare the two books and you don't have the other book in front of you, you'll see quite a difference in just. How we go about creating a landscape it just you know the the firm i think has evolved significantly over the last maybe decade and um you know it, it, it's too bad you don't have the other book in front of you because you could just look at the cover of this book and look at the cover of that say, okay i kind of get what you're saying um and so i think when james is referring to as you know it was a great opportunity it's a perfect time you know we 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 kind of have this sensibility about going about a project and it was changing the way our landscapes ended up and we had to get that off our chest and out there to show everybody, Uh, you know, we looked at the old book and we were like, um, you know, we had quit even, we weren't even giving it out to people anymore. Um, You know, it was, Oh, that works old or, or that, you know, so we were, um, we really wanted to, you know, show what we, what we had just finished and what we were up to
0: it's It's funny too. and and by the way, there's a review, I did a review of of this book um, in, in a book look section, and, and I think it's in an upcoming episode that it's it's funny. That episode will actually air before this episode does. So if you're if you're listening to this conversation, check the show notes and you will find a link back to um, my my ideas and thoughts about intersection of nature and art. It's interesting to me that this was your second book and something that you said, was you know that you wanted to you you wanted to put in the new work as opposed to some of the old work but I've I've looked at a whole you know your body of work from the website and from some other some other areas to to look at that one of the things a couple of things actually notes on on your work is and I noticed this from the book everything you do it looks like it belongs there in many cases, it looks like it's been there for generations. Um, in, in a lot of cases, you know, you can tell that because there's a sculpture there and, and it appears to be something that is that is relatively new, as in, you know, not hundreds or, or you know, decades old, that it was obviously done recently or semi, semi-recently, but everything you do looks, looks completely timeless. And I know how much work goes into making something look like it belonged there and it was effortless to begin with. But that being said, and back to this book idea, so you've published one already. Now you're publishing this this second one. What changed in, in the manner in which you work and the way you craft? What changed in the work between the first book and the second that made it so different?
1: Well, I think the world changed dramatically. You know, I think that there's... Um, aside from COVID, which I, you know, and, and I think that that brought about some real changes with, um, with client awareness and with um, our responsibilities as landscape designers um, to bring an, an awareness to people. Uh, it was always something that I personally have been interested in you know, um, from an eco- ecological standpoint um, and trying to mix uh, creativity with that. Um, we we also started to become involved with projects that were hugely, hugely more complex than previously. And I think that... Um, you know, a lot of credit has to go to Justin with regard to that. Um, you know, because partnerships can be tricky. And I think that you've got to sort of uh, work on the similarities between partners and embrace differences. So, um, one thing about Justin, I will say, is that Justin likes to challenge himself in a way that I, and maybe a little bit more uncomfortable with. Um, you know, that he enjoys the sort of uh, detailing and the sort of engineering challenges that come with um, our work, even though it's probably 99% residential design, these projects of ours are, uh, are hugely complex these days. And, um, we work at sort of one part of the of a of a major team that's put together to sort of finalize um a dream of a client or deliver out their aspirations mm-hmm. yeah, I think you know you hear a lot of people in our industry that
2: focus on residential work they call it um high end which I think is kind of an annoying term (laughs) we like to call it like high design or complex residential landscape architecture um and I think that's because we you know we're we really are diving deep in you know down the rabbit hole um to kind of develop these these details and you know I think we're interested in you'll see more materiality maybe in this book than the last book um you know I think the execution and composition of things is slightly different in this book than the last book. Um, but I think, you know, like James mentioned, you know, with, as the projects have changed, the clients have changed. Um, I think they're, I guess, you know, every now and then, I guess we once in a while we do get like my father who wants like a perfectly green lawn for his kids to become the next, you know, Pele or something. But, I think our client base is becoming, they're they are changing a little bit. They're becoming more aware. Um, and so that changes our work. Um, you know, it, it allows us to come up with solutions that are, you know, more sustainable or have support more ecology. And I think, so it's kind of moving away a little bit from more of like a post-war um, landscape with a perfect foundation planting. And, A perfect green lawn, and you'll see more meadows and, um, you know, more kind of messy plant life, uh, things of that nature in in this book compared to the old book.
0: Hey Justin,
1: I think that there. No, sorry.
0: No, no. Please go ahead.
1: Um, I think that there are um, threads and similarities uh, that have continued from maybe day one of my practice and and our practice. And, you know, I've heard other designers say this, that I was never driven by sort of the financial reward. And um, it was always, and still is about the creative challenge. And I think there's a freedom attached to that, that, allows one to sort of drive and pass that down to our staff where we give them the freedom to be really creative and we're always about creating something really really special and now what we're trying to do is to sort of create these emotional connections um between our clients and their their newfound landscape, or if we have to go in and sort of rejuvenate a landscape to give them something that they could never have imagined and to reimagine something that existed. So I think there is a much more emotional um, connection between our work and sort of our newer clients. And that's definitely been a major change. I think, you know, as we get older, our clients get younger, but they are certainly, they are certainly aware. And I think we've been lucky that the one thread is that we have clients who, um, I would class them as high profile clients that have the, um, financial wherewithal to spend a lot of money on, on that sort of, outside realm that has become hugely important. And the other thing is that I think the world of landscape architecture has become much, much more prominent over the last decade and much more important than it was perceived before.
0: Look, I totally agree with you. I was gonna backtrack on a couple of things. Uh, Justin, you had mentioned that, uh, I think you said your father, for example, wanted the perfect the perfect lawn so that his kid could be the next Pele. Were, were you the next Pele designate? Is that what I picked up from that?
2: No, 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 I just, I just I, you know, growing up we had the perfect green lawn and uh, it's no, funny I, actually, go ahead. No, please. No, we, like, so now like if you go to my house or if you go to James's house, <laughs> you show up and you have a perfect green lawn, you've got this meadow and then you have this perfect green lawn. And um, it's just, you know, it's funny that you know when I first did it at my house, people were like, "Man, you need to really cut that grass." I mean, what is going on? And um, you know, I think people are becoming more aware because now I, I get this soccer dad coming over to my house. And he's like, "Oh, what kind of grass is that in your front yard?" You know, I'm really interested in that. And I and I think so. People are changing and and they're um, becoming more aware. And it's I think it allows us to to to. Kind of experiment a little bit more and maybe have more sustainable landscapes. And, yeah, but but we do, and I said we get we get my dad in here sometimes. Is we do get the guy that needs you know the back forty to be mowed lawn and you like, why? You know, this is why do you need to do this?
0: <laughs> well, it's it's funny, and I sort of picked up on that because you know James, uh, something you had said was you know not necessarily liking the term high end. Right. But but this this high end element, I feel like um, I feel like we're in a really interesting place right now, culturally, societally. And you're right at the you're right at the the epicenter of this, because, look, let's let's just be, you know, brass tacks on this high end is typically designed as luxury. Luxury is generally qualified as larger budgets and bigger spaces. Right. Right. i think you talk about a lush gra- green grass and and more people understanding what that entails and i think anytime you lock somebody down to a to a place for you know a year a year and a half 8 months 12 months whatever it is for any given period of time and i i think about the manner in which i relate to landscape and exteriors now because living in southern california during the pandemic, you know, living at the beach. So I was living at the beach. Small footprint, four thousand square foot lot with a you know a twelve hundred square foot house. Our our exterior was everything, but we also relied on being able to go to a park down the street or a greenbelt down the street or go to the beach, you know, three quarters of a mile away, a ten minute walk. But then when they close it down, you don't have a choice anymore. Mm -hmm. So it makes you start to think high end means more space, right? Traditionally, except in some places, you know, if you're in if you're in Manhattan Beach, California, or if you're in West Hollywood, the lots are smaller. It's still incredibly expensive, but you're paying for other things that now you don't have access to. Because of that, I am curious, how did how did this experience being the pandemic change your vision, your views, your thoughts on that exterior space as it relates to high-end? Because, yes, a lot of the work that you do is expansive, right? But high-end has so many different definitions based on, you know, luxury and financial constraints. But how did it fundamentally change the manner in which you relate to the space itself?
2: I. I think first of all I think like James has been you you really haven't changed in how you relate to your space I mean you've been kind of been doing this he's kind of had this homestead thing going on way before the homestead movement you know kind of I would say homestead setting kind of picked up uh people spend more time in their gardens they they need them um they they realize what what they can do for them during the pandemic I think James has been living like that I think the firm's kind of born out of this kind of Gardening idea. Uh, James's background is in gardening, and I think he's been doing it for a long time. Um, and so I think it was kind of like I just think maybe more people have bought into that or
1: um, realized the need for it. Um, yeah. Well, I you know there's there's this term in business where people want to scale and scale up typically. And, um, you know, we get to work on properties that could be a thousand acres, 70 acres, 22 acres. And I think that we are really, really adept at scaling down so that if somebody has a half acre or one and a half acres, I have I personally have one and a half acres and I have a really great vegetable garden that we I tend and we eat from year round. I have, um, it's it's almost like a little farmstead. I have chickens, fresh eggs. I am a beekeeper. I have a meadow. And yet I do have, you know, sort of the more traditional aspects of a garden in large herbaceous borders. Um, And there is this intersection of nature and art that's quite dramatic with, um, with my landscape. And, you know, I think that we strive to give everybody something special, whether it's 0.3 of an acre or 300 acres. And um, I think that's one of the major skills within our office that we sort of deliver
0: to our clients. You are listening to my conversation with James and Justin from James Doyle Design Associates. We'll be right back. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration Behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple, it will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. The Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, Southern California chapter, is a forum for professionals in the industry and enthusiasts to come together share their love, and show their commitment to the timeless principles of beauty, proportion, and observation that are embodied in classicism. Their members include renowned architects, designers, landscape architects, builders, students, artists, and creatives from every walk of life. It's a wonderful organization designed to celebrate the unique regional identity of Southern California and help develop the careers of the like-minded. If you're interested in joining or would like to learn more about sponsorship and support for the ICAA Southern California chapter, please email me convo by design at outlook.com. Curious too. The, and it's interesting to have have views on timeless design, right? Because certain certain elements you can incorporate, adjust, change, um, differentiate based on new new projects the one thing that you can't do is account for changing climate environments interiors doesn't it that doesn't really affect a, an interior designer or an architect uh, as it relates to the interior layout of a home i would imagine this directly affects you it directly affects the work that you do and I'm curious. As things continue to change in real time, how does how does that change the work itself? How does that change the way you view it? You you have this this view of the, of of the work and what it means and what it should mean and stand for, but the practical application it has. I imagine it has to change to some degree when you have different you know different factors that are changing in real time. How do you account for that?
2: Well, maybe we can talk about some examples of things that have happened. For instance, we've been working in Dallas and the great freeze of Dallas happened, changes the, you know, the plant selection, you know, live oaks that have been there forever suffer. And, you know, we're actually we're still dealing with that. Right. So we with our clients it's kind of a long haul um we, we, you know we might work on the project for four or five years uh by the time we're completely hands off and um you know so we as it relates to planting you know it changes the selection in which well you know on our next project we might not specify that plant or um you know we we've, we've had some up, up north we've had some um issues with certain blights on. Species of plants where we've kind of have to we've had to put like a moratorium on that plant. We can't use this plant in our office anymore uh, until we figure out a solution for this. Or um, so I think from a planting perspective and environmental factors. I guess that's what you're getting at. Um, I yeah I think we we
1: we talk about it in the office. Um, but but I think that these challenges um, existed. Yeah. before people became aware about climate change. I mean, they existed for us because our landscapes evolve and continue to grow after the client has finished the interior decor, the architecture is somewhat static, and our landscapes um will change, live, sometimes die, ever-evolving. And get we, we, we we have to have the vision to sort of see the future and see what will be ahead of us in 10 years' time. So we, we kind of have, always have had to design for that. Um, with my background in horticulture and sort of this, plant uh, expertise and horticultural knowledge that we have within our office, it has allowed us to um, work across geographies. And there there is that one chapter in the book where you see projects from um, Florida to California to France to Italy and Ireland And they all bring about different challenges. Um, And a lot of them relating to our work, are sort of climate and um, plant palettes. And so we have to use the right plant for the right place. And you can't do that without having this, you know, horticultural expertise. So we've always had those challenges. And, um, I think what's been, what's been great about this career for us is that we have broadened our horizons over the decades. And even though we're based in Greenwich, Connecticut, which has been a a really a wonderful base, we, we work across the globe. I mean, I've, I've been to sort of the Middle East, we've worked across Europe, we work all over the US. And um, and if you boil it down, what works here in Greenwich, Connecticut does not work in Northern Connecticut. Or um, I think I mentioned in the book that something in inner city Dublin is going to have a completely different plant palette to Southern coastal Ireland, which is subtropical. And um, and then you add the complexity of climate change on top of all that, um, that our, our specific zone here in Greenwich, Connecticut has changed from a zone six to a zone seven, which sort of expands the plant palette that we get to use um, but we also have to be aware that Mother Nature is going to throw another curveball at us next year or in three years time. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that that brings about something really interesting and something that we've embraced. So uh, I, I've been personally really lucky to have worked all over the globe. And I think everybody in our office now gets an opportunity to travel and um, that expands beyond landscape design because we get an opportunity to work on historic projects. We get an opportunity to work on projects that have um, different architectural ranges from um, traditional important historical buildings in the northeast. To something much more uh, contemporary in Los Angeles, for instance, mm-hmm.
0: if, if you both had to, and this is the hard part, and I, and I totally get this, if you had to choose a favorite project and and let's narrow it to the book to the, to the new book, if you had to pick a, a favorite project from that, which would it be, do you think? Justin, you're going through now. Do we have to agree?
1: Um, No, (laughs) no, 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 absolutely not. We should both pick. I I think, I mean, I could probably answer that and change my mind next week. But um, for the sake of an answer today, uh, there's a project in Martha's Vineyard. Um, I think it's actually the first project in the book. And, uh, you know, I would base that My answer on the fact that it it is with one of my favorite clients, and I've worked for them in other locations. But it was a setting that allowed us to sort of, um, uh, it's a coastal setting. So um, that threw up opportunities. It was a wonderful. Um, low-slung, shingle-style home that I admired. It was with an interior decorator, Victoria Hagen, that I admire. So the team and the craftspeople working on it were exceptional. And then I think that um, we were able to sort of combine the facets of our work that uh, have worked for us for decades, which is sort of a um, combination of structure and uh, uh, juxtaposed in a very natural um, environment. So we've got the coast, we've got meadows, we've got heavily detailed outdoor entertaining spaces and then um, something else that we've become Quite well known for is our uh, design of swimming pools and water features that we don't just give our clients the generic swimming pool or water feature that we strive and challenge ourselves to come up with sort of something bespoke, something unique and something really, really special.
2: I did not work on that one much, um, so that is not my favorite one. <laughs> no, for me, I think it's it's also like I think about the process and what led up to the kind of the project. Obviously, James mentioned the client that has also something to do with it. Um, I like the Amagansett project. It's in uh, Long Island. It's a, it's also a coastal project. But I think you know that that design when we did that design, we kind of both worked on it. It almost began as kind of a napkin sketch. Yep. You know, it was, it was really kind of, it's really a conceptual project that got built. And, and so it, it, you know, a lot of these projects that, you know, you go through this conceptual phase, then you go to this development phase, then you go to this construction phase. Um, on that project, we kind of shortcutted that and we went straight from this concept into construction. And I think you see a little bit of that in the landscape uh, on that project. It's su- super simple. Uh, the plant palette is super simple and you know so it, it it's almost that concept card that what that you know you sometimes you see that concept card and you're like wow that's awesome and then you see the production card and you're like oh, i don't like it as much and i feel like that one is a little bit more of a concept landscape and um, i like that one yeah. this
0: yeah. is um this is bluff road yes yes yeah. 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 Um, I, I like that one, too, very much. And what's what's interesting, too, is the the elements that you've incorporated into this. You know, again, I, I see the I see the pool, you know, and that's that's obviously a hallmark. Right. And and yeah. there's a there's an outdoor conversation pit. And one of the things that I, I think speaks to the to the work as, as I've seen it is, you know, it feels to me like in some cases you're approaching the exterior space in in many cases as an interior space so you've got you've got a fire pit which which really almost has more of a feeling of a fireplace to it surrounded by seating and you could you know when i look at that that speaks to me as i can envision my family sitting around that outdoor fireplace having a conversation about the day you know just sort of relaxing with the family and friends and and enjoying the space which is ultimately what it what it comes down to is that it, it, being from southern california you know we talk about bringing the outdoors in mm-hmm. a, a lot you know b- or back to the 70s right but do you also have that conversation of bring, bringing the indoors out you know, to to look at an exterior space is perhaps you know the, an extension of the indoors because you mentioned working with 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 Victoria and working with an interior designer. How does that How does that relationship inform the work as well? And I'm sorry, I threw like four questions at you, but I'm just curious because it's all you know. Looking at this project, I I really do I really do see that.
2: Yeah, I think I mean I think that's I think we've been working. You know, sometimes, let me me put it this way. I'm not gonna be able to answer all four questions at once, but um, one thing is the way the process works is, you know, we get this, what should is some version of the floor plan from the architectural team, maybe the interior designer is also involved in that creation. We get that drawing and, you know, in our office, we always have the first floor plan on our drawings because we're thinking about the relationship and you know, in some climates, it's not you. You might not be thinking about the actual literal connection. Like, oh, I'm going outside and I'm sitting in this space. You might be thinking about, okay, I'm sitting here in this room and I'm looking at this view, or, um, you know, what does this view gonna look like in in February in Connecticut or New York or something? Um, but I think we're constantly thinking about the architecture. We're fans of architect- architecture. Architecture, um, you know, we learn a lot from looking at these different floor plans we study those floor plans and then we you know we have preconceived notions too about like what's proper for outside of this type of room you know the master bedroom suite you know outside of that you know a client might want their own private shower or their own private outdoor spa or we did a project in um santa monica um with howard back um and there's this total indoor
1: outdoor I mean you basically it's a, it's it a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a postage stand yeah
2: it's a tiny little lot but you you basically open the doors of the the master bath and you're and you're outside I mean I I would almost be uncomfortable being naked in that space but the client is not so um but it you know so that, that is constantly a, a threat in our work um I feel like if you're not doing that then you're not really doing you're really not doing her job. Yeah,
1: I think what's interesting is that the two projects that we we sort of picked are are actually um vacation homes. So the clients don't spend the whole year there. Whereas um you know when you when you think about homes that people live in most of the time and especially uh in the Northeast <coughs> um you absolutely have to think about not just the physical connection, but about the visual connection from the inside out. And of course, you know, it, you guys in LA have embraced that concept forever, um, and and you know, it's 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 always been on our radar. But you know, it's again, you know, when you set up something like a focal point, uh, and another reason why. Art is so important to us in the landscape is that that um, that visual from the inside out um, in the winter with specific lighting can create this master, masterful sort of, um, you know, strong, amazing visual effect. That lasts throughout that season and changes as the season evolves. Um, you know, so we're also thinking about four seasons when we when we think about these connections. It's forever evolving. Um, our our clients too, they also tell us like on those projects, they they
2: they can be very specific on on. The way, not necessarily about about what they want. I feel like if they tell us exactly what they want, then we're not the right firm for them. But if they, if you know, they they want to do things in their landscapes, um, the 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 Bluff Road one. You know, that client was really specific about how he and his family were going to lounge around, and you know, behind it's not it's not depicted, but behind um, that fire pit was a ping pong table, and you know they they, they talked about all these things and, you know, we get to know these folks over the, the process and um, we kind of, you know, it's our job to kind of understand how they want to use their landscape. And um, so I think, yeah. I,
1: yeah, actually when we do initial schematic designs, we always put furnishing plans on the schematics just so that people understand the um, scale of these outdoor spaces. And, um, you know, some of it is educational. You can, mm-hmm. you know, give them an opportunity to envision themselves dining in the space if you put a dining table there, or a fire pit or a, um, a lounge environment. So, uh, yeah, I mean I think that we've always been thinking about those connections. Actually there there is one project in the, in the across geographies and it's um it's an old chateau in France. And the visual connections and historically it's always been this way where um Louis would have stood inside in his palace or his chateau and you know looked out to oversee and the grandness of his property estate and uh, I think the visual connection in that environment is way way more important um, than actually walking through the garden it's it's viewed from every window, every floor and so we always have to think about, the views not just from the first floor but from from the master bedroom upstairs as well
0: speaking of which how do you how does how does that inform the your your thoughts and what comes out as an idea for a project because i'm i'm running through as you're talking i'm thinking okay well here's how an interior designer would look at it Okay, well, here's how an architect would look at it. So an architect is going to look at something necessarily either, you know, either they're, they're working on an existing structure. So they're looking at what's there and figuring out what's possible, or they're doing a, a build, a ground up. So they're looking at, you know, the environment that they're building into. Um, an interior designer is going to look at a, a square, as a room of any, you know, it could be a round room or a square room or a rectangular room, but it's still a, a box of some sort an enclosure when, when you're doing what you're doing, you know, if it's a chateau and you're walking up to, you know, uh, up to the window in, in a turret and you're looking out, you're, you're trying to get all of the, all of these different angles. I would imagine that it adds a a third dimension to what, to what you have to do or what you're trying to do with the space. And you're envisioning Louis <laughs> getting up and walking out there and taking a look and you're putting him, you're putting yourself in, in that in that space, I'm just curious. When you start from square one, what do you do? Do you do you go out with drones so that you can get a, a higher vision? Do you do you just walk it? Do you after the conversation? I, I find this fascinating because the 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 creative process, having spoken with as many creators as I, as I have, the creative process always surprises me how how others do it. I'm just I'm fascinated by the process.
1: Well, I, can, I, can I can I just explain like sure. the differences? Yeah, I think yeah, but it varies significantly yeah. depending on. You. So, I think what's really interesting and we talked about this yesterday is um that we have very different creative processes, Justin okay. and I. Um, and and they they're, they're usually complementary, but a lot of the time we work separately. And um So with me, i I go and I look at something, and it's immediately all in my head. And I have a vision. And that's been something that I, has been with me since I started designing. And so I come back here, and um, when I was a single practitioner, I would get it out of my head, but you know, within the office and we're working on teams, I have to verbalize that. I verbalize it to staff and I sort of hopefully inspire them to do something. And I give them the bandwidth and the rope to even fail, but we eventually get to a great design. When I look at Justin and um, he works differently, I could walk into Justin's office and he's sitting there With pen and paper, and um, he may have another staff member in there. And there's this gorgeous drawing (laughs) landscape appearing on paper. And I can see that physically coming from his head to his pen and appearing on paper. And there's something really amazing about me seeing that. Because that's not how I operate, um, and that's a huge difference between us. I think he's a great illustrator, um, but we both convey these messages very clearly yeah. to our staff.
2: Yeah, and I and there's like another layer that to that too. We have like you know we have a super talented uh, group of people working here. James kind of touched on it. We give them a lot of design autonomy. We mentioned earlier that like kind of design rules so if you have a good idea it doesn't doesn't matter where it comes from in our office it, it sticks um and so you know everybody in the office they kind of have their own different process on top of that so you know we we may have uh, some ideas and, and start some idea thinking for our team but then they take things and they all do it completely different themselves. Um, I wouldn't. I would say there's some commonality, um, <clears throat> but I think everybody goes about like you mentioned, and you find it fascinating. Everybody has this kind of different way of getting to it. Um, specifically, you know, you said something about drones and stuff like that. I mean, technology is always changing. Um, I at one point thought I was re- a real savvy technical person, but as I get older, I realize <laughs> I come. <don't, laughs> Dumber and dumber as it relates to that, um, but we do have you know folks in our office that can model things in 3D and show us um, you know different viewpoints that we might not have been able to see. I mean, oftentimes we use those visuals to kind of convince our clients, um, and you know, but I think you know generally we start and plan like most design teams do. Um, really simple uh you know kind of layouts of something we may come up with one or two schemes for a project present it and then oftentimes it's kind of, you know many times it's kind of a hybrid of those two um, ideas sometimes and you know then we go into kind of a development process um but yeah it, it, it it's not always the same for every project either i mean i think some folks kind of really clients want to be really kind of, you know, told exactly what is going to happen and this is what we're going to do. And um, other clients want to be more iterative and back and forth and, um, you know, they really want their thumbprint and those are usually the best clients, the ones that want their thumbprint up the gardens. Um, so it just depends on the project. And it's, it's, it's
1: kind of always changing, I guess. But there, but there has been sort of a, a history or a philosophical thread throughout our work from day one. And I I think it's one of sophisticated restraint, edit, edit, edit. So when we sit down and have charrettes with young, enthusiastic designers, you just have to, as a business owner and as somebody with a vision, um, you, you've got to be able to say no, say it nicely um, and sort of restrain some of the enthusiasm that people have that don't have the experience um, or that are learning our philosophy. And, um, you know, we, we are definitely not about trends, never have been. And it's something, it's a term I really, really dislike. Um I think we, we've always been about style. And you know, I've I've personally been influenced by fashion, music, uh, other associated arts. And um, you know, I think that sort of has influenced um me and my work, but I think more than anything else and it's not unlike you i would class myself and i know justin is as, as extremely curious mm-hmm. so we're open-minded and you know you've interviewed um other designers and artisans and i think that we admire um, those people as much as we admire other landscape designers
0: so interesting. So a couple of things. Um, I, I just want to. I want to sort of challenge you on on one idea, and that is the trend. The trend thing. Uh, by the way, I th- I think I think you're spot on, but I want to put it in context. Um, I think trends are great until you add a why. To it, I think trends can be used. You know, in 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 automotive, in music, in fashion, trends tend to inform other creators on how they can take a certain idea or maybe in, be inspired by a certain idea, and l- leverage that concept into their own work. Something you had said earlier is, is something that I agree with wholeheartedly, one hundred percent. Is this idea that you have to look into the future? I have, I, I have been on this. This this concept of creators, designers, architects, landscape architects, designers as futurists. Um, I I consider myself as a journalist, a futurist to some degree. At this, at the same time, because you know, a designer as a futurist is looking at their work in a ten to fifteen year time horizon. An architect is looking at their work in a hundred to hundred and fifty year time horizon. I imagine when you look at your work yes things will live and die you know a sofa doesn't die but it it will it will go out of style or maybe needs to be refreshed or re, you know recovered or re, you know fixed but a, a landscape is a is an outdoor space is a living breathing thing it is by the very nature of what it is no pun intended it is designed to look different in a month in a week in a year maybe seasonally it's designed for that purpose <laughs> So I agree wholeheartedly that that you are, you know, you are a futurist and you are looking at these things. Trends, I, I feel like trends speak to that and only become a problem when they become trendy. You know, I think in the 1960s and 70s if one person had an avocado and harvest gold room, it'd be like, wow, that's really cool. But then when everyone started to do it in the 90s, when everyone thought, hey, Mediterranean, we're gonna go that way. In the beach cities of California, when everyone decides the Cape Cod mod is the way to go, and then you have every single one next to each other looking the exact same way, you know, that's when it's like, oh, you took something cool and screwed it up because it became trendy. Do you find yourself sort of fighting with that? Or how does how do you deal with that? Because oftentimes you know, trends appear in fashion, automotive, music, the things that you mentioned, because they're good ideas. It's when someone bastardizes them and makes a mass, mass market that it becomes a problem.
2: I mean, I think a goal of ours is to create work that other professionals uh, one of our goals or one of my goals is to create work that other design professionals look at and say, Oh, that's a great idea. I'd love to do something like that. Right. And so there's a trend, I guess you can argue that's a trend. I think, you know, these, you know, you see it like this time of year, you see all these magazines put out the 2023 trends, garden trends of the year,
0: you know? Oh, I hate that. I'm with you. If that's what you, I hate that.
2: So, you so that kind of gives the term trend a bad name, I think. Yeah, you're right. And so, I think for us, like you know, we want folks to pick, you know, ideas and concepts that speak to them or have a reason, um, you know, or grounded in some narrative, or um, not just because you know uh, that's going to get you an extra buck on your resale because it's trendy or.
1: I don't know. Um, well, I mean, in, in our world, let's just say a fire feature or a fire pit is the trend. Yeah, I think it's our job to quell the importance that our client is putting on something like that. And it's not that we won't deliver it to them, but we will do it in a creative way that may be more timeless than something that's going to look terrible in four or five, ten years time. Yeah. You know, we, we we're we're in we're in a trend here, architecturally in the Northeast, where everybody wants this black and white farmhouse, and believe me, it's going to be dead and done, you know, before ten years time, and. um soulless black windows yeah everywhere <laughs> you know so I, I think it's our job to curate um people's thinking and open up sort of doors in their mind for something that maybe they hadn't thought about yeah you know so like we can deliver what they think they want but maybe in a sort of a more sophisticated way.
0: Yeah. It's so funny you say that. It's like one one person from the neighborhood went to Singapore and saw the black and whites, brought it back and then everyone has to have it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, it's uh awesome. it's everywhere. Um, so funny.
0: Um I wanted to if if I could and I I <laughs> I'm almost I love doing this but it's also it could be a little cringy sometimes. It's like you know, for years when I was in broadcast, um, I worked a lot with musicians and as well. It's like, hey, can you play that one song or can you tell us, you know, why that song or why you why you named the album, what you named it. Um, but I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite projects of yours um, because I absolutely love it. It's it's on your site, um, and I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, the Greenwich Modern. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. So I, I really do love this project. It is one of my favorites of yours for a lot of reasons, not the least of which that it, it reminds me very much of the Neutra VDL house in Silver Lake, um, California. You have you have a modern structure, but it's what what surrounds it both accentuates the the modernity of the structure itself as well as the completely natural environment and i feel like there is this harmonious balance between the two i've always I, I love modern structures i i always have um but my my issue with many modern projects is that the exterior takes on an equally if not more modern feel mm-hmm. so that it, it it just becomes too stark and and cold. This is a modern structure, but the the nature around it it's almost like the 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 home itself sprung up from the nature around it, and I just you know not to get not to romanticize it too much, but I really, really do love this project, and I wanted to ask you about it.
1: I think we love it too um, and it's a bit of an anomaly it's so long in, the, in the in that it's a good modern house in Greenwich, Connecticut. And we we really don't have many of those. So it started with a client who wanted this sort of retirement home. They wanted ease of living. And it really began with an architect that we work with, Amanda Martoccio, and we admire. And, of course, it started with her house but there were existing features on that property that we absolutely wanted to embrace and i think it's a lead certified project also yeah
2: which is kind of uncommon for a the client was you know they wanted a lead certified residential yeah. house and this is you know the, that's pretty uncommon for a, a residential client to say something like that so I'm not sure, sh- I don't know how familiar you are You are with it, but it's quite a matrix to go through uh, and create a residential landscape that uh, checks all these boxes on, you know, for instance, the irrigation system needs to be water-wise in a certain way. All the hardscape surfaces need to have, you know, a certain amount of vegetation over them to, you know, to reduce the heat, heat island effect.
1: There's all sorts of- uh, Local plant material, local hardscape material, um, maintaining existing features, um but beyond all that the design is um one of the most fulfilling projects that we've done in this office for sure and um i oh god, it so weird about this project because the clients were retiring and this was going to be their forever home and they went and sold it within two years and moved to Santa Barbara (laughs) right? Um, and uh, he was a major finance guy so we went through uh, like one of the most strenuous value engineering processes that we've ever gone through in this office to the point where I, I remember having a conversation with this client and he was like do you really even want to continue? Do you think you can continue under these parameters? And um, it was it was a really large exercise in give and take. And, um, you know, so I think we're really proud of this work because we had those restraints, yet we ended up with amazing, um, Details in the landscape that were hugely complementary to Amanda's house and to an existing site. So, like the masonry work is exceptional, the water features, the um the pool, the masonry game walls, and then the plant palette was something really, really specific, um, not only in color but in texture, and was like completely fitting for a juxtaposed project between architecture and landscape but also being very complementary. So I think you've picked a project that is sort of very dear to this office and we've won some sort of we've won some ASLA awards for it and um mm-hmm. yeah it was it was challenging but like hugely fulfilling. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I love it. Um, I really do think it's spectacular. I, I love the work and I love the book. And because of that, I'm so thankful that that you both made the time, um, Justin, James. If, for those listening, if you want to check out the projects that I've mentioned, go to the show notes. Uh, you will find links to that as well as links to um, the review I did of, of the book, Intersection of Nature and Art, which is spectacular. And you'll find a way to buy that as well. So it, that is definitely one. Uh, for the for the library so Justin James thank you guys thank you for making the time today this was really fun I appreciate it thanks
1: Josh we had a lot of fun too thanks so much
0: thanks Josh thank you design hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery style space with a thoughtful display of products purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery high-end faucets luxury tile Natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available. Stop by to find your inspiration, Collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. You hear conversations about transformative design all the time on Convo by Design. We talk about it all the time. But what does that really mean? Design improves the lives of those who inhabit the space. But it also feeds the creativity and the soul of the creative. Are you looking for a way to give back the oasis alliance is a 501c3 collective of creatives based in and around the washington dc area with a mission to provide healing spaces to those who are rebuilding rehabilitating and recovering have you wondered how to apply your design skills to uplift your community it all starts with a desire and a willingness to share your gifts Danielle Woodhouse-Johnson of the Oasis Alliance and her team are looking for guest designers, in-kind sponsors, and funding to make better the spaces and therefore the lives of everyday people who find themselves coming out of traumatic situations. Check out theoasisalliance.org for more information. Thanks for helping. Thank you, James. Thank you, Justin, for your time. Loved our chat as much as I do your work. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the show. If not already doing so, please make sure you are subscribing so you can get every episode the moment they're published. You can also find Conva by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts, which, by the way, with over 450 episodes, there's more than enough episodes to go back and binge uh, should you so desire. Thank you to my wonderful partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Moya Living, and Design Hardware. Without you, I would not be able to do this. And for that, I thank you. Thanks again for listening. Be well. And until next week, take today first.